Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This is week number two of our mini-series, Christian in a Good Way, from our year-long study from the Gospel of Matthew. This week, we'll be taking a look at the word hypocrite. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tierra as she asks us to reimagine our understanding of the word hypocrite. So, as I mentioned, we um, kicked off a new sermon series last week that we are calling Christian in a Good Way. And the basic idea behind this sermon series is that we're just simply exploring what it means to be Christians in a good way. Uh, as Reverend Tim pointed out last week, uh, we have a little bit of a PR problem in America or in the West. Um, Christians have a little bit of a PR problem. Uh, in fact, in 2017, uh, Lifeway Research, Lifeway is a, a Christian organization, and they asked um, a number of people, particularly people who, when they turned 18, they left the church for at least a year, and they asked them why. Why did they stop attending church? Now, some of those folks stopped attending because they went to um, college and they never found a church. Uh, But some of those individuals, the second most prominent category up there, they left primarily because they found people in churches, they encountered people in churches who were judgmental and critical. In 2018, when Barna Research Group, that's another Christian organization uh, that does specifically um, research on faith and life and culture in America, uh, they asked a group of non-Christians what the biggest barrier was to um, faith. And interestingly, they uncovered the one thing that boomers, millennials, and Xers all agree on. Uh, So that second category there, um, they again, encountered individuals who they felt to be critical and hypocritical um, and judgmental. Um, And for Gen Z, Gen Z lags behind. It's their number two barrier to the faith. But for Gen Z, the most prominent reason was because they were trying to square like God as a good God and also evil and injustice in the world. Uh, But for the vast majority of people, most prominent, most prominent was the thought of Christians being hypocritical. And my guess is that these stats are not your first time, these slides are not your first time hearing an idea like this. My guess is that a number of you know people um, who reflect the stories that those stats tell. Um, I live in the the East Town Heritage Hill neighborhood and I regularly hear similar stories. Um, It usually happens in a conversation with either a neighbor or a complete stranger in a, a coffee shop. And as it happens, when you meet someone for the first time, what do they ask you? What do you do? Yeah, and I usually try to avoid that question because I'm never sure exactly how people are going to respond. And, but I do eventually respond that I'm a pastor. And um, as it turns out, I don't look like most pastors. Is that surprising to anybody? <laughs> I'm a lot shorter. <laughs> and, so, um, and so usually when I say I'm a pastor, um, what I actually get and people are actually disarmed when I say I'm a pastor, and I then hear like these incredible, and not incredible in a good way, but these incredible stories of how they fell out of the church, or these stories of how, for some of them, like pushed out of the church uh, for a number of, of things. Um, and as people recount these stories, usually I, I listen, um, I ask questions, I express empathy. Sometimes, admittedly, I get defensive and I want to defend the church and defend what the church believes. And like, well, maybe if you looked at it from this vantage point. Um, and usually at the end of those conversations where I'm getting defensive, I, as they walk away, I'm like praying, like, God, please send someone better along for them to talk to you. <laughs> I totally bomb that interaction. 
I'm pretty sure I am not the only person who's heard stories like that. Um, I just did a blessed lab for um, our young adults MC, just their group, and what I discovered in that, that encounter with these 12 individuals is that all of them know people, like tangible people who have fallen out of the church, some of whom have never been a part of the church. Um, I know from talking to a number of you, from doing Bless Lab with you, that a number of you know people um, that you work with, people that you live next to, um, people who are part of your extended family, um, who have walked away from the church, um, some of whom have never even been a part of the church before. And so these are not just stats on a page, like these are actual people. So whether we believe it or not, whether it's fair or not, whether it's fair for the, the stories of a few people to be extrapolated onto the entirety of the Christian body, um, whether it's fair or not, the fact is we have a PR problem, and it's really pervasive. And so the question becomes, how do we fix it? Like, how do we fix our PR problem? Well, to get at that, last week, Reverend Tim taught us a new word. It's a Hebrew word. Does anyone remember the word? Say it aloud. Okay, no one remembered in first service either. You'll remember after I say it. <laughs> kadosh. There you go. <laughs> so kadosh means holy, um, awesome, uh, singled out, consecrated for, set apart. Uh, kadosh uh, is the word that you use when you refer to a person or a thing as holy. The vessels in the temple um, of the Jews were holy. They were kadosh. Uh, when you refer to a collection of holy things or people, uh, it's kadoshim. We hear you say kadoshim. You are kadoshim, a group of people, a group of holy people. Uh, and so um, then the question becomes, what exactly does this look like in practice? Like, what does it mean to, I mean, like, practically speaking, what does it mean to be awesome? Like, what does it look like to be singled out or consecrated or, or set apart? Well, in today's text, Jesus actually notes a few marks of holy or set apart or righteous or just people. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 1 and read through verse 18. Uh, so a little note as you're turning there. It's 18 verses. It's a lot of ground to cover. Um, what we will do is kind of move through each of the sections. What we won't do is actually the Lord's Prayer is in this, this um, set of scripture. We're not gonna fixate on the Lord's Prayer, uh, so I'm gonna move past it as I'm reading, but it'll be noted on the slide where it is um, if you wanna go back in your Bible and actually take a look at it and read it for yourself. Uh, so picking up in verse one, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street corners to be honored by others. And truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not pray like, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Yeah. Uh, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting." Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So Jesus names three practices, three practices, giving to the needy, which is sometimes called almsgiving. Uh, He also highlights um, praying, and he also highlights fasting. Uh, And these are some pretty significant um, um, practices which we're gonna get into in a bit. But before we do that, there's one like blaring, like one like really loud repetition in our text. Um, Anybody notice a word that like came up over and over again in the text? Hypocrite, thank you. My hair like absorbs sounds so I really can't hear, so you have to like speak really loud. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. Uh, hypocrite. Jesus tells his disciples over and over again, don't give like the hypocrites do. Don't pray like the hypocrites do. Don't fast like the hypocrites do. Uh, now, our definition of hypocrites, um, people who essentially don't do what they say they do or say they believe, uh, that is typically our definition of what a hypocrite means. In fact, recently I was looking over a book, it's called You Lost Me, and it's a book written by, I want to say it's David Kenneman, I deleted his his name from my my notes here, but uh, he writes this book to kind of summarize, like, what are some of the reasons why people, and particularly young people, walk away from the church, Uh, but then he does something really cool, he actually kind of almost like surveys and then curates a bunch of strategies and ideas um, from other people, some of them people that you know really well, some of them people that you might not know very well, um, as ways to get at. Like, what does it look like to help people find their way back to God, essentially? And one of the people that he collects an idea from is Richard Stearns. Um, Anyone know who Richard Stearns is? A couple of folks, I see some head nodding, yeah. So Richard Stearns is um, a Christian business leader. I think that's probably the best way to describe him. Um, He wrote The Hole in Our Gospel um, years ago. I want to say that's like the 20th anniversary edition, so that book is pretty old. Um, but he also um, has led a number of organizations. Um, he was the CEO of Linux. He was the CEO of Parker Brothers. And eventually he became the CEO of World Vision, this pretty incredible Christian organization, Christian missions organization. Um, most recently, he wrote a book called Lead Like It Matters to God, a book on Christian leadership. But uh, he shares this little nugget in, in this book. Um, and, and the title that he uses is Refuse a, Christ- Sorry, Refuse a Religious Veneer. And he says this, um, he says, you lost me too when I was about 15 or 16. I wanted no part of an institution filled with hypocrites who talk the talk without walking the walk. But in my early 20s, I began searching for truth instead of searching for a church. And my search led me right back to Christ. I realized I had thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Most people who leave the church are not really rejecting God or Christ. They are rejecting an institution or specific people who claim to represent him. And he says a number of other things that get at a little bit more of why, he, why that is. But then he concludes with this. He says, young people have a sensitive nose for phonies and for hypocrisy. And when they smell them, they run the other way. So first, before I even go on, I just want to say, like, I have not read any of Rich Stern's books. Um, I've seen him give speeches, you know, on stages at conferences, but I've never read anything of his. So if he's, if he's shared anything like this in one of those books, like, it would be news to me. Um, but I, from the vantage point of someone who's watched him give speeches as, like, the Christian leader of the century, um, never knew that he'd walked away from the church. Like, I was genuinely shocked that he began his story that way. And it, I mean, it's lamentable because it's, Like, we almost lost someone that amazing, and I I happen to think that our young people who are sitting in our congregation who gather with the youths later 
in the evening on Sundays, they could be the next Rich Stearns. Um, men, young men and young women who are being raised up in our midst could be those people. And it's usually, I mean, by the grace of God that some of those folks actually come back to the church. And so, so anyway, I, um, I was stunned by that. But then secondly, notice the definition that he gives for um, what it means to be a hypocrite. Hypocrites are people who, um, what? They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And he describes them as people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. That kind of dovetails with the definitions that we might find. Dictionary.com has a definition of a hypocrite. Uh, Merriam-Webster, behavior that contradicts what one claims to believe um, or feel. Uh, So to be a hypocrite, as Rich Stern says, is to talk the talk but not walk the walk. And yet, Jesus seems to be getting at a slightly different definition of what it means to be a hypocrite in our text for today. So it wasn't until the 1700s that we began to refer to hypocrites colloquially as people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. Up until then, and going all the way back to the first century when Jesus walked the earth among us, hypocrites were essentially actors. They were people who performed on a stage. Uh, Ancient Greek culture um, references hypocrites as actors, as stage performers. Uh, In ancient Greek culture, actors would wear masks on a stage. Uh, These masks had these really exaggerated facial expressions, and so you could like you could you could pick up, you know, maybe anger or sadness or. Um, maybe, maybe the gender of the character being portrayed, most of the actors were men, and so they would wear a mask so that you would know the gender of the person they were performing. Um, masks also help to amplify their voices. So why would you need a mask in a theater? Um, well, because you're in a theater, and sometimes theaters could be huge. And so if you are one of the peasants <laughs> sitting in the nosebleed seats, you actually need everything you can possibly get to help you hear and also see what is taking place. So the word for hypocrite is actually two Greek words smashed together, uh, both of which to indicate an actor or a performer. Uh, but it's this word hupo. I mean, here you say hupo. Hupo uh, is a preposition. It just means underneath something. Uh, this music stand is underneath or hupo my iPad. Uh, the second word is kretes. I mean, here you say kretes. Kretes. Kretes means to judge or judgment. Um, Chelsea, our, our youth director, will attest to this. I was sitting in the lobby last week, and I'm looking at these two words, and I'm going, I don't understand how they're getting actor from this. Like, how do you get actor from under judgment? I mean, literally, the translation is under judgment. And then it dawned on me, who are you under the judgment of when you're an actor on a stage? An audience, absolutely. So under judgment of an audience. Uh, That's what a hypocrite is in the first century in ancient Greek culture. That's the definition of what a hypocrite is in Jesus' mind um, as he tells his disciples to not be hypocrites. The actor is the person who does, um, does the right actions, performs the right behaviors, but they are doing so as a performance for an audience. They are doing so under the judgment of an audience. And that is what makes their actions a performance. That's what makes their actions a performance. This is precisely what Jesus warns his disciples about. He tells them to not be like the hypocrites who do their performance, their, their ostentatious d- display of, of their piety before all of these people to attract attention to themselves. In fact, Jesus goes one better. He goes one better. He actually tells them to do their deeds in secret. Um, Jesus says to them, um, 
Truly I tell you, I'm sorry, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen and then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Um, he also tells them to give in secret um, so that your giving may be done in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when he tells them to fast, he tells them to actually don't display your fast on your face. In fact, do your fast in such a way that it's not obvious to other people that you're fasting. And then your father, who is unseen, will see what you are doing in secret and will reward you. Jesus seems to tell his disciples that they are supposed to perform their piety, to engage in their acts of piety in a way that is secret, that is not apparent to the people around them. There's just one problem. In the very same sermon, and we covered this a few weeks ago, I believe Pastor Rob preached this sermon, uh, Jesus actually says this to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that others may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So it seems that you are supposed to pray and give to the poor and fast in a way that is not obvious and, in fact, is actually secret. And, and you are supposed to do your good deeds in such a way that people see them and glorify your Father in heaven. How do you do both of those? How do you pull those off? Like, what is Jesus saying? Like, is Jesus contradicting himself? Like, how do you pull both of these pieces together? Um, it's kind of, and more, and more kind of into our own day, if people think we're hypocrites because they think we don't actually walk the walk, then how do we tell people that we're walking the walk unless we show them that we're walking the walk? It's kind of like when you go to a restaurant and there's a tip jar at the cash register and you go up to pay and then the server walks away from the cash register and you kind of got to like hold the money in your hand before putting it in the tip jar. Like it's just like there, like pre-release, like everything's frozen until they turn around, right? Like it doesn't count unless they see you drop it in. Actions don't count unless people see you doing them, right? So to get at that, to figure out how we do our deeds, do we do them in secret? How, do we, how, do, how does God get glory from them if we do them in secret? I want to take a little bit of a look at, um, at practices and the way these practices actually came to be. Um, and I think that'll shed a little bit of light on what Jesus is getting at. Um, so Jesus highlights these three practices in our text, um, giving to the poor um, or almsgiving. Um, he highlights prayer. He highlights fasting. And you got to ask, why these three specific things? Like, is Jesus kind of pulling these out of thin air? Um, and the reality is, by the time we get to the first century, these three things, along with a few other deeds, um, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, these three had come to make up what it meant to be, or what it looked like to be, righteous. Uh, they make up, um, um, you can use the phrase like Jewish piety, like Jewish piety came to be marked by these three things. And there are some other things in there, like burying the dead, uh, you hear Jesus reference that um, as well, and there's a couple other things woven in there too, but these three in particular became these staples, these staples for God's people. Uh, we read a lot about these um, in throughout the Old Testament, but we also encounter them in a period known as the Second Temple Period. A Second Temple Period um, is kind of that, that we sometimes refer, the, refer to that time as like the intertestamental period or the years of silence. Uh, Second Temple Period is another way of referencing that by these two historical events. Uh, so for those of you who remember, or for maybe for those of you who don't remember, um, God's people, 12 tribes, whole kingdom um, of Israel, eventually they split. Ten tribes go to the north, 
two tribes go to the south. Uh, the northern tribes basically get picked off. I mean, that's probably a very crude way to say that, but they, they get toppled by the Assyrian Empire, and Assyria's foreign policy was to essentially kind of do a dual deportation. So they take people from Israel, from those 10 tribes, into different provinces in Israel, and then they send people from their land, from Assyria, into those 10 tribes' land in Israel. Um, and what it does is it breaks down the community, breaks down institutions, breaks down you know, religious systems. Like it it's kind of hard to rebel if your people are all mixed up between multiple places. Then the Babylonians come along and they sack the Assyrians. And in the process, they also, a bunch of other things you'll read about in the scriptures too, they also um, sack the southern kingdom, the two tribes. And their foreign policy was to deport the best and the brightest. The smartest people, the most talented people, they deported them into the land of Babylon, into the provinces of Babylon. And then eventually they sacked the temple because their foreign policy was, we need to show you that our God is stronger than your God. And to, and to do that, we destroy your temple and we take the vessels, the holy vessels, the kadosh vessels from your temple, and we put them in the temples of our gods. And then after that, Cyrus the Great, you remember him as Cyrus the Great, he's Persian, and the Persians sack the Babylonians. And Cyrus's foreign policy was, actually, we should let everybody go home. Let people go back to their, their lands. Let people rebuild their temples. Um, and so in something like 538, sorry, 587 BC is when the temple is destroyed the first time. Uh, and then in 538 BC, Cyrus issues an edict. You can read about it in the scriptures as well. Uh, essentially allowing the Jews to go home and allowing them to rebuild their temple. And then around 515 BC is when the temple is finally finished. It takes a while. It takes at least a decade and a half. Um, so 515 BC marks the beginning the second temple period. End of the second temple period is what year? 70 AD. Yeah, that's when, who destroys the temple? You remember? Yes, and he's a what? Roman, there you go. So the Romans destroy the temple in 70 AD. You've been paying attention all these years. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we have a number of books in our Bible from this period, uh, books like Daniel and Esther, uh, but also the last 10 chapters of Isaiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, um, Haggai, and a couple others that I'm, I'm forgetting at the moment uh, that kind of shed light on what life is like during this like second temple period. Um, and then there's some other books um, that are not in most of our Bibles. They're in Catholic Bibles, they're in Orthodox Bibles, and they're in some Protestant Bibles. We call them extra biblical um, or apocryphal books. And uh, they're not extra biblical, like extra holy. They're just like extra biblical because they sit alongside the books in our Bible. Uh, and some of these writings are fictional. They're mythical. They're fantastical. Some of them are actual accounts of things that have taken place during that time period. Uh, but all of them, um, I mean, the reason that people come back to them over and over again is because they do shed light on an otherwise pretty silent time, um, a really silent uh, portion of history. And so um, these are, are works that help us to understand what was shaping the imagination of God's people um, and the culture that Jesus like, is born into. And so one of those books uh, that we pay attention to is a book called, um, oh, by the way, 
One of those books, which we're gonna get to in a second, uh, is called Tobit, and Tobit was actually found among the Dead Sea Scrolls um, at Qumran. So we talked about Qumran last week. Uh, We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls last week. You should go back and listen to that. But around 1947, people find copies of all of these works, the entirety of the scriptures except for Esther, uh, but also a ton of apocryphal works were also found too. Um, Fragments, um, whole books. um, But our Christian Bibles were actually a really solid record um, of these works and also contributed to the preservation of of these works over time. Um, So quick word, why those are even necessary in the first place. Um, Remember I said, Cyrus said, you can go home. You can rebuild your temple. Here, here's all the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar took from your temple, all the vessels. You can have it all back. Um, And some people really do go back to Israel. They go back to the land. They rebuild the temple. They put the vessels back. Um, But a number of people, a number of people never actually return. They don't return. And the stories that they hear from Israel are not positive. They're longing for their home in a foreign land with gods that they don't know. Um, and so this faith that they have, they're trying to figure out, like, what, like, how do I do this thing? Like, how do I do faith? How do I do life? How do I do culture? How do I be a Yahwistic Jew in Egypt, in Persia, like in whoever takes over the empire next? Um, and these works actually help us to get a better sense of that. So All that to say, Tobit is one of those manuscripts that we found, uh, something like five copies at Qumran, four in Aramaic and one in Hebrew. Um, And Tobit is one of the works where you actually get a better picture of like what exactly exactly does faith practice look like? Um, And he is, um, I'm actually gonna skip both of these next two, Reuben, and just go right to the text. Uh, So Tobit gets approached by, um, and his son Tobias, they get approached by an angel named Raphael. And the angel says a number of things to them, but what he also says to them uh, is prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. A little righteousness is better than wealth, sorry, than wealth with wrongdoing. It is better to give alms than to lay up gold, for almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Those who give alms will enjoy a life, a full life, I'm sorry, but those who commit sin and do wrong are their own worst enemies. So almsgiving prayer, fasting, all mentioned together in this text. This is a pretty more, a more popular uh, version of, of this. But and then there's some other texts where they're kind of mentioned, isolated. Uh, ben Sarah focuses solely on um, almsgiving. This is another text from this period. As water extinguishes a blazing fire, so almsgiving atones for sin. Uh, those who repay favors give thought to the future, which they fall, um, when they fall, they will find support. And then he goes on to extol the virtues of almsgiving. In another text from this period, we see fasting highlighted um, as a practice of piety and connection with God as a regular practice to engage in. This is in Judith, uh, in Judith chapter eight. Um, Judith remained a widow for three years and four months at home where she set up a tent for herself on her, the roof of her house, presumably where she prays, as she put on sackcloth, which was common for people to do when they fasted um, around her waist and dressed in widow's clothing as she fasted all the days of her widowhood um, except for um, on the Sabbath and on the festival days. Uh, for those of you who pay attention to numbers, if you ever notice that when we fast, for Lent, we say it's like 40 days, but you do the math and you're like, I don't understand how they're getting 40. It's because we skip the Sundays. You don't fast on the like celebratory Sunday, the Lord's Day. 
There you go, a little tidbit for you. <laughs> so um, another text from this period, which you're probably way more familiar with, this is from Ezra 8. Um, Ezra uh, proclaims a fast um, for them as they travel, and so that they might humble themselves before God and ask him for a safe journey for them and their children with their possessions. Uh, but I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road, because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. And so we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. And then there's another text that we're familiar with, Isaiah 58. And Isaiah 58, uh, we see fasting actually critiqued. And so in the first two, we see fasting done as a regular practice, fasting combined with prayer. And then we see fasting critiqued, uh, and I won't read through the entirety of this, um, but um, the critique is from the Lord through the voice of Isaiah and the Lord says through Isaiah, is this the kind of fast I have chosen? It should be on that second slide. Um, is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fast I have chosen to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? Going down to the very end, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. I alluded to this earlier, but throughout the literature of this period, you'd see this transition from piety being focused around the temple to piety then being focused around practices. Why? Because the temple isn't available. It's not accessible. You're too far away from it. Um, people had questions about whether faithful worship was being practiced in the temple even after it was being rebuilt. Um, and so you have to figure out another way to think through and live into your faith. And practices become the way to do that. Um, and not just practices for the sake of doing practices. Notice the language they use. Like, like almsgiving atones for your sins. Like it purges sin from your life. It cleanses. Uh, it's literally stacked up next to the temple. Used to go to the temple and offer sacrifices through the priest. But because the temple's not available, you do practices, and those practices cleanse you. Those practices purge the sin from your life. As the proverb says, to do righteousness as justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And so practices take on a whole new life of their own, which explains why Jesus is highlighting almsgiving, prayer, and fasting in our text. And Jesus doesn't necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater. The assumption is that God's people actually will continue to practice almsgiving and prayer and fasting. Jesus says, so when you give to the needy and when you pray and when you fast, Jesus assumes that anyone who wishes to follow after him will engage in these practices, and yet he has a critique. And the critique is that the practices somewhere along the line stop being a way to commune with God and became a performance. Jesus gets at this, or there's a, there's a word that is sort of related to um, this word that I introduced you to earlier, crenane, uh, crenane. Um, it means to judge or to separate. Um, the idea that you get is that to be a hypocrite or an actor is to stand at a distance from your actions. It's to, it's to perform your actions in such a way that they are detached from who you are. Now, you might do those actions really well, you may get, give a stellar performance. You might even get nominated for an Academy Award for the performance. But ultimately, the actions are not you. They're a character you're playing. Jesus says that we need to close the distance, close the distance between our actions and our hearts. Because, he reminds his disciples, you are not a performer on a stage under the judgment of an audience. You are children. 
of your father. And the father is ultimately family. And who performs for family? How many of you perform for family or the people that you consider family, the people who are in your life, who are closest to you, who love you, who know you? Um, My sorority sisters, my former roommates, friends of mine, one, they already know I'm a slob who leaves books and clothes and shoes like everywhere. Um, And two, they know me and love me despite the fact that I'm a slob. (laughs) Um, How many of you perform for the people in your life who actually know you and love you well? Jesus says to his disciples over and over again in the text, the Father sees, the Father sees, the Father knows what you need, the Father, you're children of your Father in heaven because he wants them to know that the Father is family. And so ultimately their practices of righteousness are not done for an audience but for a family member. And what bonds families together, what bonds relationships together is love. Jesus will say later on in Matthew Um, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the second commandment is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. It seems that everything that we do, every ounce of justice in the world, every ounce of piety that we perform, all of it should be done out of devotion and love of God and neighbor. That's the game changer. And the early church understood this. I mean, in fact, Augustine, uh, St. Augustine would go so far as to say um, that you can do really, really good acts, um, but in absence of love of God, they're hollow, they're empty, they're not actually good. Fast forward a few centuries, Thomas Aquinas would soften this a little bit, and I do prefer this interpretation. He'll say, you can actually do good work. You can do good things. Those are really good works, but what makes them praiseworthy, what makes them done for the glory of God is love of God, actual, and he defines love of God as actual friendship with God, like a friendship relationship with God, loving God for his own sake. It's love that makes the difference in our actions, love of God and love of neighbor. And you've experienced this in relationships in your life, a a friend or a loved one, a significant other, a spouse, your kids, someone in your life makes a meal for you. And maybe, maybe it's a recipe that they got from you, from a family member. Maybe it's something that your mom or your grandma used to make for you when you were a kid, but they make a meal for you. And maybe that meal tastes incredible. Maybe it has like all the nutritional value and like by objective standards, it's a good meal for you. And yet, the thing that makes that meal stand apart, the thing that makes that meal the best meal that you've ever had, is not the quality, it's not the presentation, it's the fact that your little ones, your significant other, your spouse, the person in your life loved you so much that they would go to the effort, go through the effort to prepare a meal for you. The relationship transforms a person from an audience or a spectator to a friend. Love makes all the difference. But there's one more thing that Jesus is doing here that I also think helps us to understand better what he's getting at. And he says it in verse 18, and you can almost miss it. Sorry, verse 17. He says, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to the Father So why oil on the face or on the head during fasting? Uh, This puzzled me for a bit um, until I kind of like dug around in scripture for a bit. Um, Usually fasting, and we saw this in some of the texts that we read, usually when you fast, you put ashes on your head. 
Um, ashes are a sign of mortality. That's why we do ashes on Ash Wednesday. Um, ashes are also um, a sign of mourning. Um, they, they, are, they are symbolic of mourning. Now, why do you mourn? Uh, you mourn, um, if you are um, the Jews in several centuries before Jesus, you mourn because you recognize the just the sheer havoc that your sin and your brokenness, your injustice, your idolatry, that it has wrought on creation, on the land that you used to live in, on the temple, on your relationships, and even on yourself. And so you mourn. There's ashes on your head. Uh, Jesus uses this example in a, in a, a parable that he tells of the, the tax collector who beats his chest in the temple. Um, people would tear their clothes. They'd put on sackcloth. Um, people wouldn't shave. They wouldn't bathe. Um, some people would even grow mustaches. Um, it's a joke. You can laugh. <laughs> um, so for hundreds of years, this is how people fasted. They would display their mourning through their fasting. And that was what their piety looked like. It was a display of their mourning, of their sadness. Um, and yet Jesus tells them to put oil on their heads. Why? Because oil, if you do a survey of the scriptures, is associated with gladness. Like in Psalm 104, it's a celebration of God's work in creation. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, and oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Or in Ecclesiastes 9, go and eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Oil on the face was how you presented yourself at a feast or a party. Isaiah 61, which is, I think is the passage that's most relevant to our text, and Jesus would recite some of these words himself in the temple. And he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, and the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise, presumably instead of a garment of sackcloth or despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So why joy instead of mourning? Because it's not our sin and brokenness, it's not the havoc that has been wrought by our actions that gets the last word about us, about our relationships, or even creation. Jesus says to take off the ashes from your head and put oil on your head because the last word that is proclaimed that gets to define us is grace. It's God's grace. It's God's grace that meets us in the morning. It's God's grace that meets us in the despair. It's God's grace that meets us when we're dispersed and longing from home. It's God's grace that welcomes us and then grows us and transforms us into the image of Christ. And ultimately, it is God's grace that makes us into these glorious displays of his splendor. So when we engage with our God, we are able to emerge with joy because we are being transformed. And that is a joyful thing. That is a joyful moment. And you experience this, or you've watched people experience this when their children are baptized on stage, and it's this beautiful moment in the faith for the whole family. Or, or when people emerge out of the waters of Lake Michigan when they're being, after they've been baptized, like there are these breakthrough moments in our lives, these breakthrough moments in our faith. Um, and those are unbelievably joyful moments, incredibly joyful moments. Um, and that is what Jesus is reminding him that these practices are all 
about. One quick distinction before I close. Um, what Jesus is saying to us is that the hypocrite actually resists that work of transformation. A hypocrite is not just someone who talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. A hypocrite is someone who stands at a distance and almost prefers the mask, prefers the distance, prefers to go through the motions rather than step into the hard work of transformation. But a follower of Jesus does the opposite. A follower of Jesus resists the performance and actually uses practices like prayer and fasting and, and almsgiving and all the other disciplines that the church has discovered over the years, uses practices to connect with God and invites God, welcomes God to transform us through those practices. And Jesus tells his disciples in John 15 that the fruit of a person who abides, a person who connects with him like, a, like branches to a vine is joy. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. Joy is, is the outcome of our abiding in God. So we spent an entire sermon not talking about how to actually do prayer and fasting and almsgiving, um, and we're not going to get into that. Um, we're, the band is going to come back up in a bit. Um, but before I, I close, I do want to point you to our website because we actually do have a number of resources that um, we worked with pastors across Harbor Churches to develop um, based on conversations that we'd had with people in our congregations, people who, I mean, either been Christians their entire lives, but they, for whatever reason, kind of got to a place in their life where um, their way of connecting with God through prayer or scripture reading or some other discipline um, wasn't quite helping them grow anymore. And it's okay to admit that, um, and there's a reason for that. Um, but we also talked to people who they'd never been a Christian before, and so they didn't know how to pray or how to do any of these other practices. They didn't know how to approach scripture. And so we said, how about we get like our favorite like 21 faith disciplines and we put them on a website and we actually give people some directions on how to live through those. Um, and so if you go to harborchurches.org forward slash faith disciplines, you'll find something like 21 disciplines. And if we scroll to that next page, you can literally click through all these disciplines, uh, scroll to the next page. Um, if you hover over like your cursor over one of them, it'll give you a short description of the practice before you click into it. Um, it's a pretty easy page to navigate. Um, and if, there's, if you don't find something that you think connects to you or helps you to connect with God, um, all of the pastors at Harbor would love to, would love nothing more than to sit with you um, and introduce you to other practices and walk alongside you as you try, um, as you try these on. And because we really do believe that practices do have the power to um, be the site of our transformation before God. Um, and if you don't believe that, um, it's just allow this metaphor to just kind of sit in your head. Um, I like to think of practices as kind of like like a workout routine. Uh, some of us love working out. I'm one of those people. And some of us don't like working out, and I get it. Um, and at the same time, if you've ever been working out before, you've got a routine going, at some point you realize like you're kind of plateauing, like you're no longer growing, you're no longer getting stronger. Uh, maybe you're not losing weight as you thought you would. And then you start wondering, like, why is that? It's probably because your routine needs a refresh. Um, and so practices are kind of like our workout routine. It's the treadmill. It's the Peloton bike. You know, it's the, 
it's the it's the weights, um, it's the it's the dumbbells, the kettlebells that you use um, to strengthen um, yourself. And God made our bodies in such a way that um, we actually grow with resistance. Um, we grow when we increase the pace, when we increase the intensity, when we increase the weight. And um, practices are the same way. And um, so don't confuse the joy of transformation, which is a real thing. Think of it like runner's high, like it does happen. It is a real thing. <laughs> um, but don't confuse the joy of transformation with the fact that sometimes working out feels like a slog. Like at the end of the day when it's like 5.30 and you're barely making it into the gym and you kind of just want to go home and like eat donuts and like binge something on Netflix, but like you got to do the workout because it's the only time you've got. Um, Sometimes it does feel that way. But through perseverance, when we continue to lean into it, when we continue to press into it, um, we actually do get that endorphin rush at the end when you finish the workout and you do feel like you did something meaningful you do get the endorphin release because you pushed yourself harder and your body actually is getting stronger. Um, Your heart actually is getting healthier. Um, So think of faith practices like that, um, like these means of connecting with God that actually build us and that actually make us stronger, um, that actually mature us as Christians. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for... um, Thank you for all of the ways that you have um, poured into us as people, um, all the ways that you've brought us to this point, the work that you've been doing in our lives, um, through the people in our lives and in our hearts to mature us um, into the people that are sitting here today. And Lord, we also thank you for the work that you want to continue doing in us. Because you didn't call us to a stagnant faith, but you called us to deeper curiosity and deeper connection and deeper love of you and one another and creation. And so Lord, give us the courage and the boldness um, and the energy to step into that. And Lord, we pray for the reward of that, that, that stepping in, which is your joy. And so in all these things, we lift up the name of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ, amen. As we've said so many times before, we just wanna say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.